0: Welcome back to the Mind Poppers Podcast with your host, Adam O'Reilly. You're getting this episode of the Mind Poppers Podcast a little later than usual. Um, And you know what, I'm just going, I'm going through it. I'm going through it right now. You know, I just feel like for the whole weekend, I've been having like an existential crisis. You know, it's coming up on my birthday, um, which always like coming up to my birthday and around my birthday, I spiral just I spiral into like a dark depression like coming off my birthday and like my birthday's in July so for the whole month of July um I just just terrible 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 um I feel terrible and then kind of maybe like the last week in July I start to come out of that funk you know I start to rise up again and I'm like well okay it's my birthday you know after about two weeks after my birthday's passed because my birthday is mid-July the 11th so kind of the last week of July, I, I start to, like, gather my being, align my chakras, you know, bring all my energy back to where it should be. And then I'll celebrate, like, the last week of July, and then I'll celebrate, like, the whole month of August, you know? So I I, I do celebrate my birthday a little, a little later on, because I need to wait till I get out of the depression first. But something about my birthday as I get older, it always just puts me into this existential crisis. If you don't know what an existential crisis is, it's like, you know... Just kind of looking at everything and, you know, seeing how significant, insignificant we are in, like, you know, the greater scheme of things. You know, by like, how we're all going to die and nothing we do matters. And that, you know, we're nothing but a tiny, insignificant, like, grain of sand in a vast, ever-expanding, infinite universe. <sighs> but I'm fine. I am fine. Um something I always like like to remind myself around my birthdays as well and let this be like your first mind popper of the episode that time is a man-made construct time as we know it is a man-made construct you know um like time is just something that men created you know like around the start of human civilization um just really to help us navigate the world you know create calendars like explain the days and blah 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 help us to organize so keep that in mind, you know, time is nothing more than a man-made construct, but in saying that, every year around my birthday, I do begin to spiral into a dark, black pit, the void, um, but I am, i prepared, you know when I'm gonna come out of that depression stronger than ever, um... But as well as just, like, around the time of your birthday, like, I mean, I'm sure this is the same for everybody, like, unless you're living, like, perfect life. If so, good for you, you bitch. But the thing is, you know, you, you always sit and, like, reflect on your birthday and you're like, okay, is this where I thought I'd be in my life? Am I doing what makes me happy in my life? Is my career what I wanted to be? Is my education where I want it to be? Is my love life where I thought it would be? You know. So you do ask yourself all of these questions coming up into your birthday and I, I'm just not here for it. I, I don't do birthdays. I don't really celebrate my birthday. Again, like I said, until I come out of that depression weeks later and so I'll celebrate in the last week of June and the entire month of August. Like in the entire month of August, I will be like, oh, it's my birthday. It's my birthday month. Do You know, I do a birthday month. I do. Um. Anyway, moving on from that, the, the first main mind popper that I want to talk about for this episode of the Mind Poppers podcast is, and I'm sure you've all heard of it, it is this new movie that has just come out on Netflix and it's been, you know, branded as the new Fifty Shades of Grey. The name of this movie is, of course, 365 Days. So the movie is actually based on um, books Okay, similar to Fifty Shades of Grey, it's poet based, uh, the books, it's actually a trilogy, was written by um, a Polish author. You now, she wrote three books, so we can at least expect three movies. If you, if you saw the first movie and you saw how it ended, you may have been a little bummed, kind of like, okay, what the fuck was that? but there will be at least two other films 100% because this was such a it was a hit you know had everybody talking it was a hit and it was very controversial so you can be guaranteed that there is going to be another two coming out or they might do the whole like um, thing they did with twilight and um twilight and i think they did they do it with the with the 50 shades thing as well where they split the last book like the last movie into two movies so we might even get something like that Um, And the thing about these movies, like, The Fifty Shades of Grey, and then now this new film, 365 Days, um, like, they do have, like, a real strong correlation with Twilight, don't they? They have, like, this kind of domineering, mysterious, you know, potentially dangerous, you know, male character, male protagonist. And then on the flip, they have this female protagonist who is deemed to be, I guess, weaker or almost like a lamb going to the wolves, um, and it's this kind of whole power play and um, this kind of whole dumb, dumb sub relationship. Um, and look, I won't lie, it rocks my world, it gets my juices flowing. It's just the type of dirty movie that I'm into, you know, because I am a fan of smut, you know, I do like the nastier things. But this, this whole power play of the dom and the sub is something that really appeals to me sexually. And I think speaks to me, it's some kind of like traumatic thing, you know, within me as well. Like something that I would like, that's something that I want to recreate, you know, to get over some past trauma or whatever. Um, But yeah, so 365 days. Okay, so I I, I won't spoil it for you, but I'll give you kind of a, what is it about? So if you haven't seen it, I would advise that you do watch it. okay? because what else are you doing? I would advise that you watch it. There's a lot of shit on Netflix. There's no point. There's no reason why you can't get into this. Um, Basically, what happens is there is this uh, female protagonist called Laura. Uh, She is from Warsaw in Poland. And then we have the male protagonist who's called um, Massimo. Uh, He's Italian from Sicily. Um, So, basically, um, Massimo is, like, the head of, like, an Italian mafia. He's the head of Italian mafia. He's a very powerful man. He's very dangerous. He's inherited the kind of, I guess, being the boss from his father who's passed, who was murdered. So, now Massimo finds himself, you know, running this big um, drug criminal enterprise and finds himself at the forefront of that and in charge so you know he has killed people he's a very very dangerous man he has people waiting on him hand and foot so you know he's used to getting what he wants when he wants no questions asked asked so i guess somewhere you know in his life before we really you know get at least get to see in the film i don't know if they explore more in the books but he has been obsessed with this girl Laura, who was from Warsaw, Poland and I think she actually, he actually saw her one day just like through binoculars, she was like walking along the beach, they weren't together, they had no interaction it was the same day his father got killed and I guess he always clung on to the picture of her, the memory of her, like who was this, you know, like beautiful maiden walking down the beach or whatever, so I guess he kind of gets kind of like an obsession with her and like in his, like mansions in Italy in, um in Sicily, he has these this big, beautiful, like Mediterranean type mansion slash villa. It's absolutely stunning. But he has portraits of this girl Laura hanging up all over the all over the mansion, even though he's never met her before, never spoken to her. She, of course, has no idea that this this mafia boss, this creep, has like big portraits of her around the house. You know, it's not like she posed for the pictures or anything. They were just gotten, I don't know, whether from her social media or he had, like, photographers, like, follow her or what have you. So she's no idea that this big mafia boss is obsessed with him. And look, let me preface this. The mafia boss, Massimo, is fan. He is absolutely fine. Um, You know, he looks like the this, you know, tall, dark, handsome you know, Italian mafia boss. Absolutely. You can't fault him. An absolutely beautiful person, at least physically. Similarly, Laura, this kind of girl from Warsaw, you know, she is, um, I guess, a little shy and she's obviously quiet. She's like playing the lamb to his wolf. But she also has that kind of a little, she got a little bit of sass, a little bit of a, a backbone. You know, like we see um, with your one in Fifty Shades of Grey and similarly, like we see with Bella in Twilight. So we're seeing a lot of common things throughout. And like, you know, like I said, many, many times... This whole like Twilight setup of again, and we're even kind of even seeing this whole like Twilight setup in the whole like in this normal people thing, you know, on RTE, of like this domineering guy and the this bashful girl, you know, and that kind of a thing. Like we see this trope; it's being used and used and used. And like I said, nothing gets me hornier than Twilight. Twilight got me so horny as a kid. Like I read the books like three times over. Nothing used to get me hornier than Twilight. Um. It's that power play, you know, and then throwing fucking vampires and werewolves all over it, all fucking over. It. Nothing got me hornier than Twilight when I was younger. I actually used to have a big Twilight poster in my bedroom, like one of those big ones that they'd have at the cinema, and it was like um, Bella in the middle, and then you had Jacob on one side and Edward on the other. <laughs> I had to take the poster down, (laughs) you know. In the end, I did have to take the poster down. Anyway, back to 365 days. So, how the two of them actually meet. How Laura and Massimo actually end up meeting. She excuses herself. She needs to go to the bathroom. She's on holidays with her boyfriend and her friend and her friend's boyfriend. She's going to the bathroom. And she bumps into this man. And all he says to her is like, Oh, are you lost, little girl? Okay, okay. And she walks away. Whatever. That's their first interaction. Next thing she knows or what happens is she wakes up. She wakes up and she is in this like big Sicilian Italian mansion. She doesn't know where she is. She's just after waking up. um, You know, she looks beautiful, even though she was drugged with a sedative. He drugged her to bring her back to the mansion. So she wakes up in the mansion or whatever. He basically comes in and is like, look, it's like this. You have 365 days to fall in love with me. I'm going to keep you prisoner here for 365 days. And if you don't love me, by the end of your 365 days, you're free to go. You are free to go. Of course, this doesn't go down well with her. She's freaking out. She's like, what the fuck is going on? By by the time lunchtime comes around, okay, like a day one of the kidnapping, she's already enjoying like the lifestyle. You know, she's getting weighed on hand and foot. Um... And as well, I mean, look, look, there is, if you you are, God forbid, ever going to be drugged and kidnapped, I mean, in the very least, wake up in a stunning Sicilian villa, 100%. You know, I'm not condoning that, of course, but God, if it was to happen to me, you know, please, God, let me wake up there and not in some, like, 80-year-old's basement, you know? She's been kidnapped by this beautiful, tall... Italian stallion you know who has placed her in this big mansion big grounds and of course it's not long before they're fucking you know they're they're fucking in the shower they're fucking on the bed they're fucking on the yacht they're fucking in the bathroom they're fucking in the penthouse they're fucking in the gardens the grounds they're fucking non-stop and the the kind of fucking that you'll see in in 365 days it's a lot more graphic there's a lot more skin than uh, Fifty Shades. You know Fifty Shades always like, oh, was a slow burner, slow build-up, whatever. This is very much like fucking, like you do see Massimo's dick get sucked quite a lot. Quite a lot. The author was a big fan of dick sucking. I can only imagine because we do see the protagonist dick get sucked at least a time throughout the film. But the whole controversy about the thing is, is first of all, people are like, okay, so basically he kidnapped this woman and is giving her, you know, 365 days to fall in love. And, and throughout the film, you know, he like he's constantly, like, grabbing her by the throat or the back of the neck and makes it clear, he's like, you know, I can take this when I want it, you know? Saying at any time that he is free to rape her and, you know, there's nothing she can do about it. Um, of course, she doesn't really react like how the rest of us would react. She's like... <laughs> like stop you know whereas of course some if we god forbid like if i woke up in like some old man's house up in like Derry, and he's like you're 365 dares to fall in love with me like oh my god you best believe you best believe like he's getting like a fork into the eye and i'm running you know um but again different situation um so obviously as we would expect the movie goes on and he starts to become more gentle and she starts to open up to the possibility of like you know could she fall in love with him or whatever all the all while being threatened with being raped you know and i guess this is why this movie has come out as quite problematic because people are saying, right, well, like Laura didn't never fell in love with Massimo, really. She's just like, you know, we're we're watching a bitch with Stockholm syndrome, you know? With Stockholm syndrome, obviously is like, you know, when you're locked away or whatever and you're trapped and eventually you fall in love with your with your kidnapper, with your abuser. So people are saying this is what we're seeing, you know? And I guess, of course, that's an absolutely valid point. I mean, obviously the movie wasn't made, like, the book wasn't written to be, like, some deep delve into, like, the human psyche, you know, this is smut, you know, we are seeing, like, a very dominant male, you know, having sex with, you know, this subservient woman, and look, I I won't lie, you know, as as problematic as the movie is, it is also, it is very hot, it is hot, the sex scenes are, are a lot more aggressive, you know, which is right up my street, a lot more aggressive, a lot more forceful. Um, you see a lot more skin. There's there's like hints of like, you're like squinting at the screen being like, did I just see peen? You know, because you know you never get to see penis on TV. Uh, but there's like bits where, because I mean, like I said, this guy is getting his dick sucked 24-7. So there are little kind of times at the corner. or you were like, oh my god, did I just did y'all? I saw something. I saw something. Um, and you let know, me see like the shaft, the base of the shaft of its cock or what have you. So I mean, look, it it is an all right movie. It is an all right movie. It is definitely problematic. Um, but like I said the sex scenes are good now the this, this sex there's so much sex in this film you know like right where like there's dialogue and they should really be having an argument they'll just start fucking you know they just start fucking knickers to the wind fucking um, it's definitely not a film you want to watch with your parents 100% like if you watch Fifty Shades like with your mother and your father or what have you I would still would not watch 365 days with parents at all. It is just it's smut. It is filth. So if you do want to see some, you know, two very attractive people having sex for an hour and a half, you know absolutely check it out. I, I I like I mean, am I going to watch the sequel? 100%. Am I going to read the book? No. No, it ain't that good. It ain't that good. But it is still quite hot. You know, there's one scene <clears throat> where Massimo um, has Laura, like, he, like, pushes her onto his bed in the hotel room and, like, handcuffs her to, like, each post and then, like, cuffs her legs to the each bottom post. Basically, like, and the amount she moves, if she struggles, there's, like, this pole by her feet that will widen and widen to make her legs go wider and wider. And I'm, I was, like, sitting there being, like, oh, my God, we're about to see this girl being raped, like, full-on raped. Um, and I and I don't know how to feel about this. You know, like the fucking was hot, and now it's kind of like right. The, they ain't even like doing a black. They like there's no room for interpretation. It was like this is going to be raped. Like this girl is going to get raped. Um, but in the end, then he doesn't rape her. He like lets her free. And I guess like we're all supposed to be like, oh my god, what a gentle giant, you know. <laughs> Like oh my god how sweet is he for not raping that woman you know how sweet is he for not forcing himself on that woman you know so this, the standards for consent and for you know holding men to the standard it's at a rock bottom you know like you're not gonna you're not going to watch this film and feel necessarily empowered but if you are into that kind of dominant submissive uh, relationship and sexual back and forth this is your movie this is your movie now like i said it is problematic but whatever um and you know what the movie it has enough action it has enough pretty things you know so you'll get by i have to say it is better than 50 shades of gray absolutely better than 50 shades of gray you know i do have to say i was actually very surprised that this movie even got the green light you know in the age of the me too movement you would have thought that this movie would have just you know, just being shot down, being like, no, we're not making this movie. This could potentially really backfire on us as a production company and like ruin our names as directors, writers, what have you. But the movie went ahead regardless. And uh, once you, like, I know I might be explaining it fully, but once you guys see the movie for yourselves, you'll get what I mean. You get, like, this movie could have easily have been cancelled, but it doesn't look like it's going to be cancelled. It was a massive success. Everybody loved it. Everybody loved it for the smut and the dirt. Like, you know, we weren't expecting. Um, like a Shawshank redemption moment you know it's good for what it is you know 365 days it speaks to a very toxic place of people you know sexually people who who love to or you know who find themselves back constantly in that toxic relationship where you almost have like an an abusive love where it be physically or emotionally that kind of toxic relationship if that appeals to you And I mean, it is something that appeals to me. Don't get me wrong. And I'm not like, I'm not promoting it or condoning it. I'm not saying go out and find that for yourself. But look, we all know that certain things like this speak to a certain trauma within ourselves, you know, that obviously triggers some horny hormones, you know, which it certainly did for me. But continue on from that. I want to leave that in the past. I want, or when you guys watch it, get on to me. Tell me how you feel about it. But in continuing these narrative of this toxic uh, patriarchal moment I want to tell you a story you know what not even that I want to retell a story okay I have two stories to tell you stories that you will be absolutely familiar with ever since you were kids but I want to look deeper into them I want to expose some truth and I want to show you some facts that have been left out deliberately to mislead you first mind popper, or sorry, the first story that I'm going to talk about, the next mind popper is the story of Lilith. Who the fuck is Lilith? I'm going to tell you, okay? So we're all familiar with the Christian story of creation, as documented in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Now the issue here is, okay, we're all familiar of course with the story of Adam and Eve, the Garden of Eden, they've been drilling it into us in Catholic Ireland, god since you know by the time we could walk but they left out some crucial details okay details that i want to tell you now and this is one of my favorite stories ever so there is a conflicting conflicting story conflicting consensus with the story of creation in terms of christianity okay we can look back to when it's talked about in the books genesis 1 and genesis 2 they tell slightly different stories okay in genesis 1 It talks about how the first man and woman were created at the same time from the same clay. That's how how, um, Genesis 1 tells the story. Genesis 2 tells the story, the story that we're all familiar with, of, you know, God created Adam and from Adam, you know, he took Adam's rib and created Eve. So we have two conflicting stories here. And of course, in terms of religion and Christianity, the word of God cannot conflict itself. So people then would, were, the next logical step was, okay, well then there is, the, the, this is not a, a story, you know, of the same account. This is a story of two separate accounts, okay? Something that has been hidden from history because they didn't want you to know it. So let me tell you the real, in air quotations, story of creation. The story goes like this. God created man and woman. He created them from clay, okay? A clay moment. He created man and woman from clay at the same time. So, Adam presented or God presented us with Adam and God presented us with Lilith. They were the first man and woman created and were placed in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Lilith were both made from the same clay. Lilith, is the lost first wife of Adam that people aren't aware of. You know, we hear of Adam and Eve, but before Eve came Lilith. So Adam and Lilith, you know, spent their time happily in the Garden of Eden, you know. But issues arose. Issues pertaining to the relationship dynamics and the sexual dynamics of their relationship. When Adam and Lilith would lie with each other, there would always be a power struggle of who got to go on top, you know, sex wise, who got to go on top. Because, of course, you know, the person who is on the bottom is as often viewed as the subservient, you know, unless you have power bottom. But we won't get into. I don't think they had power bottoms in the Garden of Eden. Um, but so there's a constant struggle between Adam and Lilith every time they were, they were having sex, who would lie on the bottom. None of them wanted to be subservient to the other. So God came down in his normal fashion and, you know, chastised Lilith, you know, saying that Lilith should be subservient to her man, to her husband, Adam. Um, So Lilith should become the subservient one in the relationship and she should lay down for Adam to come on top of her. But Lilith didn't like this. Lilith did not want to lie down and get, like, I mean, like, she didn't want to get lie down and just be hoofed into all the time, you know? She wanted to get on top, you know? She a country fan, ride that dick like a cowgirl, you know? That was Lilith's mind frame. God wasn't happy with this. I guess from day dot, God was, you know, a misogynistic pig. So, Lilith rejected this. She looked God right in the eye and said, absolutely not. If I can't lie with Adam as my equal, I won't lie with Adam at all. So Lilith packed up her belongings, which I guess, you know, from biblical depictions was like two maple leaves and some poison ivy around her coochie, and left the Garden of Eden. Once she had left the Garden of Eden, the gates closed behind her forever you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. One word and one word only. It was God's name. God's real name. You know, they don't tell us what it was. But this angered God so much that she would yell out his true name in defiance as she left the Garden of Eden behind her. God, in an absolute fume and tampon rage, sent three angels to go and get her. The power Lilith harnessed by taking control of her own body gave her extraordinary power in biblical times. Not only did Lilith walk away from being the, the obedient wife of Adam, Lilith walked into becoming the first demon queen. One of the most powerful witches to have ever lived. By leaving the Garden of Eden, she had gained more power than anyone thought, possibly imagine, or anyone could possibly imagine. Lilith was now the most powerful woman in the world and a force to be reckoned with. The angels came down to Lilith and said that as a punishment for her, you know, denouncing God and her you know, refusing to bend the knee to Adam that every day the angels would kill 100 of her children simply for just not bending the knee to Adam and wanting to be treated like an equal. Lilith said, fine, you do what you have to do. But Lilith grew and grew in power. Her powers and her magic grew beyond what the angels could control for millennia and millennia after leaving the garden Lilith had become known as the, the demon queen or the most powerful witch of all. Lilith would go and you know Lilith was described as this you know beautiful stunning woman and the, the name of Lilith um, and the, the mythology of Lilith is mentioned in a lot more than just the, the, the Christian the Christian folklore. She, you know, goes to Babylonian times and Sumerian times and she's mentioned in uh, the Jewish religion. You know, we see Lilith everywhere and she's always depicted as this stunningly beautiful woman who was also part demon. You know, she had gotten her powers from denouncing God and she would go and she would take semen from men as they slept and impregnate herself so she could bear more and more demon children into the world um lilith used to kill men she used to because lilith was often depicted as a succubus so she would lure men in you know with her sexuality with her body language and have sex with them you know take their sperm and then kill them and then kill them so lilith had become one of the most powerful beings known just by taking her own power. Um, Of course then, once Lilith had left the Garden of Eden and gone on to become the mother of demons, this powerful uh, witch, God came back to the Garden of Eden to Adam and was like, well, shit, what the hell are we going to do now? Because he didn't want Adam just wandering around the garden by himself. So God put Adam into a deep, deep sleep. While Adam was asleep, God, I guess, cut the bitch open. um, And took a rib from Adam's chest. And from that rib created Eve. He created Eve because using Adam's rib... So Adam was created from Eve, or sorry, Eve was created from Adam. And since she was created from his rib, she would be subservient. She would be the loyal, submissive wife that, you know, in terms of God's eyes, Adam deserved. You know, it was Adam's right to have a woman beneath him. So God created Eve from Adam's rib. And that is why Eve was created from the rib and not clay. That's why we're familiar with the rib story. Because this was done. So that she would be. By her very being. The fibre of her being. Being created from Adam. She would be subservient to him. And everything. Seemed all fine and dandy. You know we know how the story goes. But. Some people say. As an one last act of revenge. From Lilith. Who by this time had become one of the most powerful demon queens in the world returned to the garden was so powerful that she was able to cloak herself from god's eyes in his very own house and transformed herself into a snake and she slithered around a tree where she knew adam and eve would lie and she saw eve you know lying underneath adam subservient to him And Lilith did not like it. She did not like seeing another woman being chastised by Adam and by God. So that is why Lilith turned herself into the snake with the apple and tempted Eve. So not only was she defying God again, but she had gone back and as one final act of revenge had freed another woman from being subservient to Adam. That is some big clit energy. That is some big clit energy. And you, the reason you wouldn't have heard this story before is because you have to remember when the Bible was created, you know, I mean, back then Christianity was essentially a cult. And yes, you can argue that all religions are cults. But what I'm saying back then, like in its very earliest days, you know, you had this text and you were telling people that this was this text was the word of God. You know, this text was the word of God. So that came with an extremely, you know, a large amount of power. You know, whatever, I remember the book was written by man, you know, it wasn't written up no clouds, it was written by man. Um, So whatever you put in this book was going to be the word of God and that came, you know, an extreme amount of power and with power, of course, comes corruption. So for, for you're not going to include in the story of the Bible the story of Lilith, you know, who defied god twice you know and by denouncing him became one of the most powerful beings to have ever walked the earth the heavens and the underworld of course you're not going to include that you don't want fucking feministic teachings in the bible you know obviously back then and still subservient women was were women that were treasured that was the ideal so of course they're not putting fucking badass lilith in the bible you know we're putting that push over even you know um but that is why you don't hear the story of Lilith, because it's too powerful, too powerful. It was a moment. And that's why you won't hear about it, because it offers too much hope. So the teachings and the stories of Lilith have been burned, they've been they've been thrown away. It's not a story that they want you to know. And now, interestingly enough, a lot of modern feministic groups will have adopted Lilith um as kind of like a, a maiden, kind of like a figurehead, but a lot of um modern practising witches as well and throughout the centuries, you know, will still like Covens today will still call upon Lilith to their circle as their um as their goddess, you know, because of the power that she she represents, especially the the power in the in the feminine that she represents. Which you know what, it's just my favourite, it's the one Bible story I enjoy telling over and over again. I love that story. I love that story so much. And remember, if you are a spiritual person, you are a religious person, you know, check who you're praying to. Check who you're praying to. You're praying to the dude that wanted you to be second class to Adam, or you're praying to the bitch who got up and left and created her own empire. You know, I know who I'm praying to. Um, But in keeping with that, of stories that have been misconstrued through the ages I want to tell you another story again the next mind popper is the story of Medusa I have always been drawn to Medusa and we we see Medusa all the time in pop culture she appears in movies after movies she's like the figurehead for Versace you know as Medusa um and I actually studied Greek mythology in college. Yes. What didn't he study in college? Yes, I did a module on Greek mythology, but I've always been drawn to Medusa. Something about Medusa, you know, has just drawn me to her. But when we think of Medusa, we think of, you know, this this woman with the snakes in her hair, like maybe she's bottom half, snake down, top up, she a woman. Um and uh, obviously, when when someone looks on her face, when a man looks in her face, he turns to stone. So we're you know we're always given this picture of of Medusa as, as some sort of beast, you know, a, a, as a monster, as as a villain, as a figure of evil. You know what? Well, what she actually is is a gorgon. You know that that's just by definition what, what kind of creature she was in Greek mythology. She was a gorgon. But some tellings of the story which have been lost in time depict Medusa in a very different light at least her origin story than what we were you know led to believe growing up again there ain't no person in the world who doesn't know who Medusa is you know and what she's about but there are few people a lot less people who know how she got there so the story goes That Medusa was a beautiful young woman, a beautiful young woman, minding her business, okay, minding her business, walking through, you know, the roads of ancient Greece. Light breeze flowing through her hair, her olive skin, you know, glistened in the sunlight. She was, by all accounts, a beautiful, beautiful woman. She was walking one day down the road and she came across A babbling brook, a babbling brook that poured into the ocean. She was on the Greek coast, you know, beautiful oceans, dolphins, Greek people (laughs) throughout the coastline. So she decided to walk along the beach as she did every day. There was something about the ocean that called to her ever since she was a little girl. It was freeing. It promised adventure and openness and... An escape from a claustrophobic life. One day the call of the sea was particularly strong for Medusa. Stronger than usual, she felt compelled to approach. She walked and she was ankle deep in the water and the ocean called to her but it was more than how it normally called to her. It sounded like a man. She was startled. she had never felt this kind of connection to the water before but from the water something started to stir something started to rise it was a man who came up seemingly from nowhere from the ocean it was a beautiful man but Medusa knew straight away she could feel the energy change in the air the energy coming from this man the way he looked at her it was electric it was magnetic. This was no ordinary man. This was Poseidon, god of the seas, the seven seas. Um, Poseidon had appeared before Medusa. Poseidon, god of the sea, and Medusa, a mere mortal. You know, again we're seeing the damn power struggle. You know, God, it's really been going on since day dot, hasn't it? Poseidon was absolutely enamoured and obsessed with Medusa's beauty. He'd never seen such a beautiful woman before. He wanted to fuck Medusa, okay? He wanted to get nasty with Medusa. Medusa seeing this guy, you know, from the ocean, you know, she knew it was Poseidon, but still, they'd never spoken before, obviously, and now Poseidon's like, yeah, I want to fuck you. Medusa, you know, is just trying to walk along the beach. Doesn't necessarily want to be fucked by the king of the seven oceans, you know? Fair. So she rejects him. She says, no, Poseidon, you know, I will not lay with you. I do not want to have sex with you, fish god. Poseidon didn't like this and he tried to force himself on Medusa. He f- want, you know, he, he, she, either she lay with him or... Or she was being raped by him. Medusa managed to flee. She ran. She ran from the ocean. Poseidon hot on her tails. She could feel the water burning and splashing off the back the nape of her neck. She ran and she ran through the town. Until eventually she thought she found a safe haven. It was the temple of Athena. Goddess of war. She ran to the temple... Of course, I mean, she's being chased by Poseidon, king of the ocean, who Where better to go than to the temple of Athena, you know, where people worshipped the goddess of war, where better to go? So she ran into the temple of Athena in, in the hope of being protected, you know, that Poseidon, you know, maybe was afraid to enter the the temple of his sister, Athena. Nevertheless, Poseidon walked up the marble staircase as Athena, or as, as Medusa kept running, but there was nowhere to go. She was in the temple now. And suddenly, she found herself in the temple with just Poseidon. Everyone else had gone. There was no one to hear her screams, her cries for help. Again, she refused the god of the ocean. No, no, no. Ain't gonna happen. Ain't gonna happen. He wasn't listening. He wasn't interested in consent. He was going to fuck Medusa. Medusa was hot. He wanted to fuck Medusa. As a god, he felt it was his right over mortals, you know, to take what he wanted to take. And of course, throughout Greek mythology, we have seen the gods, you know, they really do what they want to do. You know, they, they, they lay some sort of claim over the mortals. So, despite her best efforts, Poseidon had pinned Medusa down on the marble floor of the Temple of Athena and had sex with her against her will. He raped her and she called out and called out and called out. She thought all hope was lost. But her call out, her cries out, were heard by Athena, whose temple they were residing in. Athena appeared and saw her brother raping Medusa, this beautiful young woman. And Medusa thought, Okay, I've I've been saved. You know, the goddess of war, Athena, has has come and you know, she protector of women. You know, I, I'm safe, I'm going to be okay. Uh uh. Uh-uh. Uh-uh-uh-uh-uh. It turns out Athena, you know, wasn't that much of a girl's girl. She saw Poseidon raping Medusa and freaked out. She was like, How dare you like disrespect me in my own temple, have sex in my own temple? You know, didn't really have any, anything to say to Poseidon. And he she did not care that Medusa was being raped, was being taken against her will. She decided to punish Medusa. A lot of people say that Athena was also very jealous of Medusa's good looks. You know, Medusa is said to be one of the the most beautiful women to have ever walked the Greek Isle. Athena did not like this. She did not like seeing her having sex in the temple, even though, of course, it wasn't consensual, and she was jealous of her beauty. So Athena cursed Medusa. Athena cursed Medusa so that no man would ever want her again. Suddenly medusa's legs started to join together seal together scales erupted from the waist down scales erupted up her body up her rib cage covering her nipples kind of like a little bikini moment her beautiful long black hair had suddenly come alive with writhing gnarling nasty snakes and from that moment forward any man that would look into medusa's eyes would turn to stone. Medusa, of course, fled. Her life had been changed forever. The the goddess that she thought would be her protector, her saviour, condemned her just as much as her brother Poseidon did. So, of course, Medusa ran and isolated herself and found an old temple and set up shop. You know, she was going to live out the rest of her days alone. Of course, people had heard the story of Medusa and what happened and everyone wanted to lay claim to being the one to slay her and Manny tried Manny went on big expeditions to her temple you know where Medusa in the wilderness and her wild temple resigned many men went to try and kill her and many failed Medusa's tomb, or Medusa's temple was laden laden with stone men who tried to kill her, but with one look into her eyes, her beautiful eyes, once the most beautiful eyes in the entire Greek isle, had now been turning all these men into stone. Medusa was punished and punished and punished. The next time we hear of Medusa is when Perseus, another uh, character in Greek mythology, goes to find the temple of Medusa and wants to slay her. The reason for this, he wants to take her head and use that head um, as a weapon when he is to fight the Kraken later on in Greek mythology. So he goes and he finds her temple. The two battle it out. Of course he isn't enamored by her. He's enamored by her beauty. But knows that her stare is deadly. Her stare is deadly. The two battle and eventually Perseus does, you know, overcome Medusa in the fight and decapitates her, okay? Not a great time to be Medusa. Like, the girl can't catch a break. She can't catch a break. But, nonetheless, Perseus decapitates her and takes her head back. As he leaves the temple, two offspring arise from Medusa's neck. Medusa had been carrying children, but when Athena cursed her, those children would never you know, come to be, she would never be able to give birth naturally. But once, when she was once she was decapitated, the babies were able to come forth. So, from Medusa's neck, after she had been slain, came Pegasus, the flying horse, and Chryses. Chryses went on to become like a a Greek, you know, noble warrior. He was the the guy with the golden sword. But a lot of people don't know that Medusa, you know the lady with the snakes for hair, was actually Pegasus's mom. Pegasus, of course, is the, the flying horse that we see in Hercules, that we see depicted throughout, you know, all of Greek mythology, the flying horse. Pegasus was Medusa's baby. But there you go. The story that we have been told about this woman who was a, a monster, a, a man-eater, a, a killer, a, a demon, was a woman who was Punished by the gods for being raped and for being beautiful, and then had to go on and live the rest of her life as a monster. Um, some recollections will say that Athena did go and get the head of Medusa and like place it like in a memorial, kind of like you know, oh god, I'm sorry for what I've done, kind of a thing. Pegasus obviously went on to play a big part in Greek mythology and eventually, like, flew to the heavens and became a constellation and a servant of Zeus, what have you. What I would say about that is, first of all, again, not a great day to be a woman, you know? Again, like, we do see a lot of badass women depicted in folklore, but their journey throughout the years, you know, kind of becomes muddled up and kind of, that we get more like a submissive energy, you know? That's the story that they want to share rather than the truth. A lot of people today, again, a lot of people who practice witchcraft and Wicca uh, and modern paganism will turn to Medusa. You know, will summon Medusa in their circles. Will will draw their power from Medusa. Will send their prayers to Medusa. You know, especially amongst female covens. Um, Lilith and Medusa play very prominent roles in the protection of women and female empowerment and what have you. What I will say, though, is... In terms of the Greek gods, like the Greek gods have always been very open in their appetite. The Greek gods' appetites have, all and, and the Romans, you know, they're virtually the same. The Greek gods have always been very human in their appetite. You know, the Greek gods were fallible. You know, they were interested in sex and war and power and desire. You know, that's always been the case. So at least we can at least we can respect the Greek gods in that regards because we, we like they never stated that they were perfect. The Greek gods were nasty, just as nasty as humans, if not more. So at least the Greeks were at least very honest about their own gods, you know. Whereas of course in Christianity we have like this one benevolent like love, this big ball of light, you know, which of course was not the case. It was a it was a facade. Um, Whereas at least with the Greeks, they were very honest, you know, that their gods were imperfect. These two stories of Lilith and Medusa have been something that have stuck with me, absolutely have stuck with me. If we learn anything from these stories, which, you know, are based in myth, these people never walked the earth, did they? But if we can learn anything from the story of Lilith and the story of Medusa is that we should question everything. We should look deeper into everything and not take anything for face value because oftentimes things are hidden from us, from people trying to control and change the narrative. Oftentimes we are left in the dark and we are being showed a false reality. So if we take away anything from these stories, let it be. That not everything is as always as it seems. Okay, come on, drama. <laughs> now I was—I actually had a, a final mind popper planned for this episode, um, which is all about alien abduction and the, the, the first. Um, well-known case the the hill the case of the hills barney and benny hill about their their story with abduction uh, abduction and i even had some of other therapy tapes to play on this podcast but i think we're going to hold off until next week next week we'll dive into the area of alien abduction and it's scary i will tell you right now it is scary okay in the meantime stay woke